Hi, and welcome to Stefan the Bearer Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today, I've got Dustin Trammell. Was he potentially the second node on the Bitcoin network? We talk about his journey of finding Bitcoin and how he rediscovered Bitcoin later on. And so Dustin is an information security professional and early Bitcoin user. And so he joins me to talk about these things, being early in Bitcoin, the culture in those days, talking with Satoshi, some early stories, investing in Bitcoin companies, as well as Bitcoin's multiple layers. Now, before we start, have you set up your Bitcoin savings plan? SwanBitcoin.com is the best way to accumulate Bitcoin. You can start with a lump sum purchase and then set up your automatic recurring purchase plan. It's really fast to set up and cheap to automate. I like the focus on education and content, and you know with Swan Bitcoin, it's Bitcoin only. There is no confusion with old coins, so it's the perfect place to send your pre-coiner and new coiner family and friends who are interested. And if you are a high net worth individual or a corporate or a business entity looking to stack Bitcoin, well, check out swanprivate.com. This is a service where you will receive a dedicated Bitcoin account expert who is available for one-on-one calls. You'll receive additional handholding and guidance on the pathway. Swan Private customers also receive Swan Private Insight, a monthly research report. So if you're interested in this, go to swanprivate.com and complete the form and someone from the team will be in touch with you. Have you thought about your Bitcoin backups? What would you do if your house went up on fire? This is why you have to think about metal backup products from cyphersafe.io. They've got the product CypherGrid. This is the best value in the industry. You get everything you need for $59. You get two plates for all 24 seed words. And you get an automatic center punch provided to stamp in the words. You get a tamper evidence seal provided. And you can lock this one with a padlock. And just like all CypherSafe products, it's fireproof, rustproof, and waterproof. So don't just rely on that piece of paper. Get a metal product. Go to cyphersafe.io and use the code LAVERA to get a discount. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can lend or borrow stablecoins globally and anonymously using Bitcoin as collateral. With Lend at HodlHodl, you no longer need to sell your Bitcoin to get some short-term liquidity. Just borrow stablecoins against your Bitcoin and control your collateral in escrow throughout the whole deal. You hold one of three keys. While stablecoin holders can earn some extra interest, you can lend out stablecoins and define the terms and the APR for those deals. HodlHodl has just completed a major security upgrade for its lending platform, bringing even more confidence and flexibility. Also, HodlHodl are hiring, so if you're a Ruby developer, make sure you reach out to the team. Now, on to the show with Dustin. Dustin, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, nice to nice to be on. So, Dustin, I've uh, seen some of your work, and obviously this recent discussion, I think, spurred some of the conversation. I thought it would be great to get you on and have a chat with you and uh, hear a little bit about your story and where you came from and how you found all this Bitcoin stuff and how you were there so early as well. I'd love to get into some <laughs> of that. So, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, what were you interested in before you came across Bitcoin? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So my career has mostly been in information security, computer security. I kind of started that career doing defense, building out secure networks for banks, financial institutions, uh, lots of firewalls, VPNs, that kind of thing. After about seven or eight years, I switched into offensive roles uh, spent about another seven or eight years doing original research around software vulnerabilities, writing exploits, doing that kind of work. And after 
all of this, I you know, decided to stop working for other people and kind of start my own firm doing consulting around all of these areas that I'd been interested in. I never had really done a lot with cryptography specifically, other than just kind of armchair quarterbacking a bit and you know hobbyist type stuff. Um, I've used PGP for a very, very long time, and I've always found it fascinating, but other than you know employing it practically for things like VPNs, um, I hadn't done a lot with it, but because of that, I was on the um, Cypherpunk's cryptography industry mailing list for a number of years. So I was uh, paying pretty close attention when the original Bitcoin white paper was published, being fairly libertarian minded and enjoying things like alternative currencies. Um, I was kind of uh, following the Liberty dollar at the time and alternative economic models, things like that. Uh, it caught my attention immediately being cryptography, security stuff that I was already interested in and working in the field, all mashed up with libertarian economic principles, uh, Austrian economic principles. And so I found it fascinating, immediately downloaded and read the through the white paper and was eagerly awaiting the software when it was released a few months later in January. So that's kind of how I initially came across Bitcoin and why I was paying attention at the time. I pretty much downloaded the software immediately, just kind of did a cursory review of the code um, at the time, but began running, running it pretty quickly um, after it was posted to the mailing list. So that's, uh, that's kind of how I came across it and got started running the, the software. Yeah, fantastic. So, I mean, you, you really were like right there at the start. So I think you were, you just had that interest in it and you were already, I guess, primed to understand this thing because you had a bit of a technological understanding and you were also interested in the economic free market aspects of Bitcoin. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So, so I guess you came across, you know, in 2008, there was that initial, uh, was it a post on the white, on the mailing list and the white paper, and then you were getting ready basically because in January, 2009 is when the actual network launched for the first time. And so, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like then being one of the early people who were running Bitcoin? Sure. So, um, when I first ran the software, you know, back, back then it was all just one piece of software. You had the wallet, the, uh, the miner, the full node everything just contained in, in one piece of software. So I started that up. And one of the reasons why I think I may have been the second node on the network was because when I started it, the, the behavior of the software back then was that it would start, um, if it was the first time it started, it would bootstrap to a known IP address and try to get a peer list and then connect to up to eight peers. And after eight, you know, it just kind of stops unless it loses a connection, then it reconnects to another one and tries to maintain a pretty static list of eight connections to the network. So when it first started up, it connected to one other node and that was it. It just kind of sat there with one connection for about four to six hours. And then it started making other connections and other nodes began to come online. So I think I think I may have been the, the second node on the network, but that's entirely uh, speculative based on the, the behavior that I saw in the software at the time. You know, I started playing around with it, noticed a few bugs, uh, reported those through email to Satoshi. He responded. We kind of went back and forth in, in uh, some conversation around bugs and some things I wasn't understanding about the software, what certain things meant, how it was operating. Uh, and that kind of thing. There really wasn't much of a community around it other than a handful of cryptographers on the mailing list uh, that also responded and had questions and 
it it got a decent amount of response on the mailing list but i wouldn't say it was an overwhelming response it was you know a handful of people that were interested and started providing feedback so i wouldn't necessarily call it a community <laughs> at the time yeah um it yeah, was yeah. yeah a handful of software engineers and cryptographers basically just trying to figure it out you know some who had read the white paper some who hadn't that just saw the software being released and and it kind of you know began growing from there yeah that's fascinating because so this is like really the early days right this would have been you know pre-silk road any of that stuff it really would have been basically cryptography and privacy activists and libertarians who you know i guess that would have fit the profile those were the kinds of people who were you were interacting with in those days in terms of emails back and forth or talking about bugs or talking about what the software did Um, and there wasn't even any commerce being done like it was just kind of like it would have been perhaps it might have seemed at that time more like an intellectual curiosity as opposed to something really practical at that early stage right yeah that that's exactly right because the the coins that were being generated weren't worth anything no one had exchanged them for any commerce uh buying selling goods nothing like that had happened I personally had been running um, some of the uh, SETI at home and other distributed computing projects at the time and thought, oh, hey, you know, here's another interesting one. This one makes digital currency. It's not looking for alien life. I'll, you know, I had SETI at home clients running on a handful of computers and thought, sure, I'll, you know, rededicate a couple of computers over to this one, play around with it, start generating some coins. I didn't realize that you had in the software to specifically turn on mining. It was disabled by default. So uh, I didn't actually start mining until four or five days later. And I uh, uh, posted the signature on Twitter showing the first block that I had mined, which was a few days later after the the network had launched. But yeah, I I also wouldn't say I necessarily was interacting with a lot of people around it. I was communicating directly with Satoshi, and a lot of those conversations, I believe, were private with Satoshi. I didn't know many of the other cryptographers at the time. Like I said, I didn't do a lot of work in that area, so I didn't have a lot of pre-existing relationships with the other people on the mailing list, other than a handful of on-list email interactions prior to that you know, with, with other subject matter. So I wasn't really interacting too much with other people around Bitcoin, just Satoshi themselves. I see. Yeah. So, I mean, in the same way that for people who ran SETI at home, they might've clicked and downloaded the client, run it on their computer, but not necessarily be interacting with the community because they might've just been a bit more of a casual, you know, observer at that point. They hadn't been, you know, and, and there wasn't this whole scene around Bitcoin and I guess movement around Bitcoin as there is today with investors and books and articles and podcasts and all of, all of these things. Oh yeah. What, what it's grown to is, is massive and none of that existed at the time. I see. Yeah. And so in terms of, uh, interactions with satoshi i mean you touched on this earlier but it sounds like and i actually had a quick look through your you did a blog post saying i'm not satoshi basically and you actually (laughs) included a a link to i think a zip file with your email correspondence with satoshi so i had a quick look obviously as research for this could you tell us a little bit about that as i saw it it was mostly sort of technical questions about how bitcoin worked or little things that you had noticed yeah that that's a pretty good characterization like i said when i first ran the software there were a handful of features and things that I didn't understand. I was looking for clarification so that I made sure I knew what was going on with the software. The the rest of it was basically just me reporting bugs. Something didn't work right. Yeah, you know, I I I uh, reported that so that it could get fixed. As you do with open source software, you you look at the code, you 
play around with it and you try to help improve it where you can. You know, even back then, I don't think a lot of people were even sending Bitcoin to and from anyone else. I was running it on multiple computers, so I began consolidating into a single wallet from these you know disparate computers that I was running it on, but I wasn't sending to anybody else. I was just sending to myself for consolidation. Obviously, Hal Finney got got the first transaction recorded directly with with Satoshi, and then some some number of days later, Satoshi also sent me some coins, basically as a thank you for submitting bugs. The email archive that you mentioned online is pretty much a complete history of uh, my interactions with Satoshi. Again, they were all pretty benign, so I felt it was fairly harmless to publish those at the time that I did. Um, I was doing that very specifically in response to a situation that, that could have gotten me in pretty hot water with law enforcement. A couple of security researchers had done a bunch of research um, around Bitcoin and some of the addresses and transactions. And this was, it was a number of years later when the news broke that you know, Bitcoin was being used for the Silk Road. Um, and was kind of the, the native currency for the, for the dark web on the Silk Road. They had done some research that basically they were uh, alluding to a specific Bitcoin address that supposedly they thought funded the, the creation of the Silk Road or funded some early uh, Silk Road development or transactions or something. Um, it's been a number of years. I, I actually forget the details. But... Um, this address that they were speculating about was very publicly my address. They didn't Google the address. They didn't try to figure out, okay, is this a known address? They were just going entirely off of blockchain data from what I could understand and were speculating. Back before exchanges existed, you know, Mt. Gox, uh, Trade Hill, some of these early ones. Before any of those existed, the only way that you could exchange Bitcoin for dollars or other currency or goods was to find another human somehow and either do it electronically or meet up with them in person. Things like the local bitcoins.com site were created to help you find other people. Um, but on IRC, Internet Relay Chat, on Freenode, there was a channel called uh, Bitcoin OTC, I think it was called. And they had a bot uh, that allowed you to register with the bot, give it a um, Bitcoin address that you could prove was yours by signing a thing uh, using the private key of the address, and then begin building a reputation around that address and that identity for doing um, electronic trades over the internet. So people were using PayPal, people were using wire transfers, and there was a lot of scamming going on at the time. Someone would send a wire, get the Bitcoin in exchange for it, and then they would go and reverse the wire or any number of things they could, they could do to scam you. So this reputation system was very important, but it required that you tied a Bitcoin address to your identity in that system, which I did. I was uh, you know, exchanging some Bitcoin at the time, looking for other people, and so I did that. The address that I tied to my account on Bitcoin OTC on Freenode was this address that they were speculating about in their research. And so, you know, law enforcement doing any more in-depth digging than they did would very easily come across that, tie it to my identity. It was my hacker handle at the, you know, this Druid, so it's tied to that identity, but I don't hide that. You can very easily associate that with my real identity and they're off to the races. So 
at the time, in order to protect myself, I felt that I needed to make a public statement, which is the, the blog post that you referenced, and point out that no, I'm not Satoshi. No, I didn't fund the, the Silk Road with this address. It was actually a Mt. Gox deposit address that they were, were talking about. Um, and the source address was my public one. So pretty easy to figure out, but the researchers didn't do any of that cursory uh, investigation around the address to determine that before publishing a paper speculating that it was related to Silk Road. <laughs> Fortunate. Um, and I guess, so nowadays there's much more uh, chain surveillance or companies, you know, chain analysis and the like, like that. Uh, and others who are doing that in a more, let's call it white hat, capacity, people like Ergo, who are listeners, I've done an episode with Ergo if you're interested. Um, but I suppose in this case, those security researchers had just done what, what was, I think you referred to it in that post as flow analysis to try to basically use these heuristics, right? And so it's very interesting what you're saying as well, that um, in those earlier days, people would actually dox a specific address that they controlled because it was a reputation system. It was kind of like a web of trust. So it's this idea that you have a private key for this address and by signing a message, uh, just ex obviously you understand this, Dustin, but just for listeners, uh, you can sign this message by revealing that you control the private key without actually revealing the private key. And then everybody else can now sort of fundamentally prove that, yes, Dustin or this guy, whoever it is, actually controls that private key. And so it's really interesting to sort of hear that explanation. And I know in those days, uh, Bitcoin-OTC was a very infamous early uh, trade destination or venue for people. And so in those days, this is also pre it even being called Bitcoin Core, right? So it would have been just code put on a source forge. <laughs> it, it was just Bitcoin. There were no altcoins. There were no forks. It was just Bitcoin. Yeah. That is the only yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of communication, I guess it would have been mailing lists. Uh, and this is this would have been even pre Bitcoin talk, right? Before the forum, it would have just been email, mailing list. And was there IRC in those days or? That's right. Yeah, there there was some channels on IRC that were related to, to Bitcoin. Um, I don't know if there was an official one on IRC. The the official kind of communications channel started off as a mailing list. Um, it was originally posted to the Cypherpunks list. Um, Satoshi created a Bitcoin dash list that a lot of the development talk moved over to. Uh, so it wasn't directly on the crypt, uh, Cypherpunks crypto. Uh, cryptography list. And then after that, they set up the, the forums with the web interface and a lot of the kind of community discussion moved there. But I believe a lot of the development uh, stuff was still on the email list, which I believe was hosted by SourceForge. So this was, this was pre-Git. You know, you had SourceForge and I believe SVN was the predominant source control tech at the time. And then eventually, you know, things moved over to Git and that's, you know, where it's maintained now. But the, the mailing list, Bitcoin-list, I believe was just hosted on SourceForge with the code repository. And that's where development and development discussion was happening. Yeah, very interesting. And so uh, are there any other, I'm just wondering, are there any other notable interactions with early Bitcoin people that you had uh, from those days? Not really. For for me, you know, I, I kind of played around with it initially. I mined a bunch of blocks. I reported some bugs. I left the miners running for a while, but eventually, you know, moved on to other things. The coin wasn't worth anything at the time. 
Um, it was just an interesting technology experiment. It was obviously growing and, you know, more nodes were joining the network. Mining capacity was going up, but I honestly just kind of got, I'm a fairly ADHD and I got, got distracted and went on to other things and essentially forgot about Bitcoin until the news about the Silk Road broke. And at that point in time, all of this other development community had developed around it. The coins were worth like seven to nine dollars by that point and I was blissfully ignorant of that entire period of time up until uh, the news about the Silk Road using Bitcoin hit and I was like oh yeah I remember Bitcoin I did some stuff I and mean, maybe I still have that wallet I went and looked and of course I'm a data pack rat so I did kind of re-engaged with the tech and the community at that point fortunately for me because I was not paying attention you know I may have sold half my coins at one dollar or five dollars or some super early price I did sell a you know moderate amount around that period of time I was like oh this stuff's worth nine dollars now let's take some profit you know, back then I, I essentially just saw it as an interesting technology project. Sure, it might be used as internet money. I understood the tech really well. I did not understand the economics and the um, kind of fundamentals of what money is. I credit my uh, Bitcoin rabbit hole journey there in large part to, to Robert Breedlove. Uh, his content is amazing. And it really helped me understand a lot more around economics and finance and what money is. Now that I understand why Bitcoin is the best money ever discovered or created by humans, it's all very, very obvious why I should have held every single Satoshi I ever had. Uh, but we live and we learn. Uh, in the early days then, I also gave a ton of it away. I uh, uh, love alternative currencies and coinage. I'm a coin collector. Uh, so when the Casatius coins came out, I bought tons of those things and I gave them away at hacker cons. I gave them away at industry conferences. I even gave them away at Renaissance festivals. Uh, one of my favorite interactions at a Renaissance festival was this guy dressed as a leprechaun. I was like, oh, he's going to love this a little gold shiny coin with a hologram foil on the back and I give it to him and of course it's at a renaissance festival so they like to play up the we don't know what technology is thing and so he's looking at this coin all you know uh skeptical and he like bites on it like see if it's real gold it's it was hilarious but you know that was a one BTC coin at the time they were worth like seven maybe eight dollars I felt it was cheap marketing <laughs> to help uh help raise awareness of Bitcoin you know yeah. they were only five bucks a pop you know who cares yeah. right uh I bought tons of those things and gave them away so for people who aren't familiar with the Cassasius coin can you just explain what that is absolutely um so uh random guy on the internet decides to start minting uh physical bitcoins and they're basically a brass token like a Chuck E. Cheese or arcade token with a little depression on the back, small circle depression that a paper wafer can sit in. On the paper wafer is a private key to a Bitcoin address. Um, I don't think you can fit the entire address or entire key on it, but there's a, a reduced size version of a key that will fit on the paper. It was printed on the paper, put on the back of the coin and then covered with a tamper resistant foil seal. Um, so that way you could see you know, if it had been messed with to get the, the private key out of it. And then the address that was represented by that private key under the foil was loaded with whatever the face value denomination was. At the time he was minting one 
Bitcoin denominations. Um, later, he added fives. There's a 25 one that was also solid gold or silver. I think it was, I think he had both options. I forget. There's a 1000 Bitcoin bar, like gold bar or silver bar. And then later, once the, the value of Bitcoin started going up, he started making half Bitcoin, 0.1 Bitcoin, etc. coins. Eventually, he stopped making these. I think he started getting some regulatory pressure about, you know, minting money. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> but it was a fun project at the time. And I, being a coin collector, you know, loved these things. I bought tons of them, gave tons of them away to just help raise awareness about Bitcoin, get people into using Bitcoin. A lot of them, people just immediately, you know, ripped the foil off of and put it in an electronic wallet, but uh, a lot of people kept the actual coins intact and a number of these still exist. There's a, a tracking account on Twitter that tells you every time someone redeems one of these coins, which of course lets you know that all of the remaining coins just got that much more valuable as collector's items. But that's that was Cassatius coins. There's a number of uh, other physical coin producers now that have come and gone and or still exist. But it's it's an interesting little subculture of uh, Bitcoin, all of these uh, physical representations. Uh, there was another one at the time called BitBills, which was like a plastic credit card looking thing. Worked the same way, had a private key inside under the laminate uh, and under the foil. But yeah, I, I bought a number of those, gave those away. Those came in one, five, 10 and 20. BTC denominations. At the time, they, they weren't worth all that much money, so it was cheap, quote-unquote cheap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's funny to just think about, right, because, I mean, even a 10 BTC coin, that's now that's you know, 600 grand at today's prices, right? So it's insane to think about um, like that. But, of course, the understanding at that time and the understanding today is so different, right? And obviously the big story everyone talks about is the 10,000 Bitcoin pizza, right, or two pizzas. I think, I think it was 20,000 for two, so yeah, 10,000 10, per pizza. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Uh, whatever. Whatever it was. I mean, it's just insane the amount of money, right? And so it's like the shift in the understanding because in those days it was. It sounds to me like it was just. It was a frivolous thing. Like people would be like, "Oh, you want some Bitcoin? Here you go. Here's a faucet." And now it's all about hodling, right? Or at least when you do spend, you're very intentional about that decision because you know it's going to be worth so much more. Or at least most of us, we believe it's going to be worth so so much more in in the years to come. Like, so I guess, like, as you said, like over time, you're, you're, even for you, that understanding shifted. How, where, where would you say the community sort of started to understand that idea? Probably, you know, five, six, maybe seven years ago, content creators like Robert Breedlove, Preston Pish, yourself really started kind of educating um, the, the Bitcoin community around the financial aspects of it. And for a lot of people, you know, once here, especially here in America, a lot of people are not financially literate. They don't understand fiat currency and what it is, how it works. They don't understand inflation, what it does to the, to the economy. And so I believe that a lot of the education being done um, around, you know, especially the last few years, it's really ramped up. We, we have some extremely high quality content in the Bitcoin community around finance now. None of that existed back then. It, it was just kind of a fun internet tech money to, to the point that like faucets existed back then. It was just a piece of code on a website and it would just give you Bitcoin. You go to it, it would give you some set amount of Bitcoin and it would have a donation address that people could fund it with and people did. Um, so if you wanted to get into Bitcoin and didn't really know how or where to get any, you just go find a faucet and it would send you, you know, half a coin, a coin, whatever. 
But now, yeah, we, we understand the importance of Bitcoin and how incredibly valuable it is and how undervalued it is right now. Even at, you know, we, we saw an all time high yesterday in 68,000 something. Yeah, the, it's still undervalued, massively undervalued. So what are your hopes then for a sound money future? One of the things I love about Bitcoin is its distributed nature. You can't stop it. It exists now. It's going to continue to exist. And because there's no way to really shut it down, it's going to outcompete everything else. And there's really nothing anyone can do about that. Humans act in self-interest. They're going to gravitate to Bitcoin as they understand it. And I don't think you can stop that. So my hope is that that continues, which there's a high probability that it will. And we get away from fiat currencies and the, the, the enslavement that they have uh, wrought on the human race. You know, like I said, a lot of people don't understand fiat currency. They don't understand what it's doing to them, what it's doing to their savings. You literally cannot save in fiat currency these days. Uh, your, your value is getting eroded away by inflation at a much higher rate than any interest you might be collecting on a savings account or on a bond. Um, you literally can't save in fiat. The, the only options are Bitcoin and maybe precious metals, gold and silver. They, they're holding their own okay, but Bitcoin is not only proving itself to be a, an excellent store of value, but also an appreciating store of value. So my, my hope is that humanity wakes up to this uh, a lot faster than it is. It's still happening very rapidly, but the, the sooner we get there, the better. Back to the show in a moment. Bitcoin mining has become really popular, and if you want to get involved, compassmining.io are making it easy for you to do this. You can go to the website, select a machine, and have that shipped to a facility with competitive power rates, and select a mining pool. You pay the hosting fees, and you will receive sats. So this is a great way, if you're interested, to earn using mining and it doesn't require advanced technical knowledge to get started. Now, if you want to take it one further step, if you're in the US, you can order miners to your home. Compass have launched Compass at Home Mining and they've even got a Compass at Home Mining Guide which you can find on their website. So go to compassmining.io and you can see all sorts of information around mining machines as well as facilities and you can get started with mining quickly and easily. Now, when it comes to Bitcoin security, my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet is the cold card. It's a little calculator-sized device, and you can basically generate and use your Bitcoin private keys using this device. And you can set it up with a micro SD card to move the transactions back and forth between the cold card hardware wallet and your computer. And you can use this easily with desktop wallets like Spectre and Sparrow, Electrum, and even Blue Wallet. So Coldcard is really an advanced leader in this in this field. They have been leading the way with things like PSVT, even support for descriptors. They're a really great choice, and there's all sorts of guides. It's a really great way to actually learn more about Bitcoin by using a Coldcard. So go to coinkite.com and use the code LEVERA to get a discount on your Coldcard. And if you're interested to improve your security to multi-signature, but you're not sure how to get started, Unchained Capital are making it easy for you. They've got multi-signature vaults. So you hold two keys in, in geographically distributed locations, and Unchained will hold the third key, so they can countersign for you 
if necessary for a fee. Now Unchained are making it easy for you to set up. They've got a concierge onboarding program, so they will help teach you how to hold your own keys. So they will ship you the hardware wallets, they'll do a call with you and teach you, even if you've never held your Bitcoin private keys before. So remember, with Bitcoin security, you want to remove single points of failure, and that can exist even with leaving your coins on the exchange or potentially even on a single signature hardware wallet. So it is time to learn. Go to unchained.com and you can select the concierge package. Use the code Lavera for a discount there. Back to the show. Yeah, and in the community, there is the infamous time traveler post. That was maybe 2013 or so. It was an infamous Reddit post. Mm-hmm. And we joke, and I, I end my podcast with this idea of where I'm going to see you in the Citadels, right? And so I wonder what your thoughts are on that that idea of Citadels. Do you think we're going to see that sort of thing? Or do you have a different vision of how it might play out? I, I think we will start to see some of that with you know the, the very early adopters, people that managed to hodl a ton of Bitcoin. You'll definitely see it from those types in the physical world, you know, going and buying a private island, securing it, being fairly sovereign themselves on that. But even for, you know, some of the people getting into Bitcoin now, that that physical sovereignty might not be very achievable, but digital and personal sovereignty absolutely is. Bitcoin is a technology that that enables that. It's incredibly hard to confiscate unless you give up your keys. It's incredibly hard to to counterfeit. No one can debase your your financial sovereignty. Now that we have that as a species, as humanity, it's kind of altered the way that humanity was evolving. We were evolving with fiat currency and central banking towards a more enslaved towards a less free global community, but Bitcoin has completely altered that. As we continue to evolve in this new direction, I believe that people will begin to understand what self-sovereignty, individualism, and all of these things, uh, the, the benefits that those things really provide. Yeah, and so in many ways, it's that people haven't really even thought deeply about financial sovereignty, and Bitcoin is forcing that into their minds as part of the conversation. and. For many people, it is like a mind virus. Once you're once you're captured and once you're inside, you don't really leave. I mean, once you've been here for long enough. Yeah, you just you just go farther and farther down that rabbit hole. That's been my experience anyway. Um, and I wonder as well. You, you were commenting earlier on the difference between investing in Bitcoin versus saving in Bitcoin. Could you explain? Right. So investing in Bitcoin essentially assumes that at some point you're going to get back out of Bitcoin. You're going to take profit. You're going to redeem your Bitcoin for some other currency, some other asset. That's investing. Saving in Bitcoin is what the hodlers are doing. They're trying to accumulate as much Bitcoin as they can and just hold it. Later, they may borrow against it as an asset, but they're not, they're not giving it up. They're using it as savings. Like I mentioned earlier, you can't really save in fiat currency. The inflation rate is far outpacing uh, any interest you might be getting from a savings account, from a bond. Uh, you know, money market fund, whatever the case may be, a quarter of the dollars in circulation were printed in 2020. That's a 25% monetary inflation rate. If you're not getting 25% on your investment or on your savings account, you are losing value. It's, It's that simple. So you have to find something else to save in. And again, monetary metals are decent. Bitcoin is far superior. 
Yeah, of course. And so that also does play into the decision around if you choose to invest in Bitcoin companies as well. And so I guess that's also always going to be on our minds when we're thinking, well, how much how much hodling am I going to do and how much am I going to be investing into even if it is a Bitcoin company? So I'm, I'm curious how you think about that idea. That, that's an interesting question because one of the uh, mistakes that I made early on after kind of rediscovering Bitcoin and getting back into it was I listened to a lot of people telling me I needed to diversify. You know, I had all this sudden money in Bitcoin. It's risky to keep all of your eggs in one basket. You need to liquidate some, move it around, etc. So I, I bought some real estate. I diversified a bit um, into that. And I also began investing in um, venture capital and startup companies. The interesting thing about investing in Bitcoin companies specifically is that you're helping build this environment, this ecosystem around the asset class, which improves adoption, improves uh, the functionality of the Bitcoin network. You know, now we've gone from the, the Bitcoin core protocol being a base layer money. It's beginning to be used for uh, primarily settlement transactions and things like that, high value transactions into layered money. We now have the Lightning Network uh, as a layer two payment system built directly on top of the layer one Bitcoin protocol. Um, and we have the, the liquid sidechain uh, also built on top of, of Bitcoin. So as we begin to build on this layered money approach and build this ecosystem around Bitcoin, it improves adoption, it improves the value of Bitcoin and what it's providing as a monetary network to humanity, which grows the value of Bitcoin. It just makes it more and more valuable over time. So when you're investing in Bitcoin companies specifically, um, you're investing in the future of Bitcoin and the value of the Bitcoin that you are continuing to hodl uh, into appreciation. So that's kind of how I think about you know, investing in Bitcoin companies specifically and why I'm continuing to do that instead of just hodling all of my Bitcoin uh, as much as I can. Um, at this point, though, I, I am doing things like, uh, you know, taking loans on the Bitcoin as an asset and then investing the capital received as a loan um, because the appreciation is outpacing the interest I'm paying on on that that credit. So, yeah, there, there's there's a number of different ways you can do it. But that's one of the ways I began uh, working with um, investing in venture capital and, and Bitcoin companies specifically. Yeah, that's aligns and reminds me very much of Pierre Richard's speculative attack thesis. And it's this idea that instead of, well, it's leveraging this idea that by taking out debt and basically putting up Bitcoin as collateral and using the fiat to fund investment or into other aspects of it, that's maybe another way to consider this. So that way you're not, you're, you're at least giving up less sats uh, in the process of investing. And now some people use that to go to essentially lever up on Bitcoin. They borrow debt to get some fiat and then use that fiat to buy more Bitcoin. And then in, you can also do it in this, in this sense. And some people even do that also right. to mine Bitcoin. So they might stake Bitcoin as collateral and get some fiat and then use that to buy Bitcoin mining equipment as, as another example to exactly. stack that and secure the network at the same time. So I'm curious as well then. So uh, what kinds of things are you keen to see in the ecosystem? Like, are you looking at lightning development or Bitcoin mining or core protocol things or other things? What are you uh, interested in, in from a Bitcoin environment and ecosystem point of view? Pretty much any and all of it. 
Um, if it's you know a Bitcoin native company, it's using Bitcoin natively, not even necessarily you know building Bitcoin infrastructure or protocols interested in that. Obviously, anything having to do with Lightning, Lightning is exploding right now. We, we've even begun to see uh, layer three on top of Lightning, like Impervious's AI, that allows you to do all kinds of interesting things through the Lightning network as its underlying layer two protocol, uh, which then, of course, settles on Bitcoin layer one. Um, so we're, we're really starting to see this multi-layered approach, not only to the, the money and the, the asset itself, but to the ecosystem being built around uh, the Bitcoin asset class. And it's, it's fascinating. So looking for all of those kinds of things, anything to do with Lightning, other side chains, Liquid is interesting. They're starting to uh, build things like um, NFTs on Liquid, which is then, of course, natively on Bitcoin. It's its own blockchain separately, but uh, the, the currency token used is wrapped Bitcoin. So it's you know, building directly on top of the Bitcoin asset. I see, yeah. And with one interesting idea related to that is this idea that obviously in the early days, and you, you're, you can attest to this, Bitcoin was more centralized in the early days, right? It was Satoshi and you and Hal and a few others. And over time, that network has it's distributed out. And now, arguably, there are tens of thousands of Bitcoin nodes around the world. There's probably close to 20,000 Lightning nodes in the world. And that's just the ongoing nodes. There's lots of people who are running it on a phone wallet or a phone app. That's maybe just not an always-on lightning node, but it is a, a lightning node in that sense. But one idea I recall is this idea that this is a way to actually bootstrap a new decentralized system because there's actually an incentive for people to run a Bitcoin or a lightning or combined Bitcoin and Lightning node. And so there are other all kinds of opportunities that might come on top of that. And I think that's where potentially companies like, uh, well, like the impervious AI idea is, is coming from as well. That's right. Um, as, as we begin to continue running into problems um, socially, like uh, censorship, you're starting to see lots of uh, these large social media providers um, essentially censoring their content. Um, because Bitcoin has proven, uh, and before Bitcoin, things like BitTorrent um, have proven that the decentralized model can prevent those types of attacks, you're going to see more and more things being built in a decentralized way. And by providing a both a tiered money approach and a tiered technology stack approach to building these types of things, you're going to see all kinds of interesting distributed systems built on top of these ones that we already have, like the Lightning Network. Uh, using Impervious as AI, you can you know send messages, you can uh, establish out-of-band communications by doing the negotiation and control protocol setup within the Lightning Network, and then, for example, uh, establishing a VPN. You could do the negotiation through Lightning with Impervious and then have your VPN tunnel set up out-of-band. Um, you're going to start seeing all kinds of things like that being built um, specifically to get around a lot of this censorship, not only social censorship, free speech, uh, that kind of thing with social networks, but also financial censorship. Um, one of the uh, you know, early, early days things that happened was um, with WikiLeaks, um, PayPal and other you know, providers that uh, they used to get donations essentially blacklisted them. And Bitcoin was a way for them to get around that censorship. So as society continues to encounter these problems with uh, 
you know, encroachments upon liberty, you're going to be seeing these more and more distributed systems being built to solve those attacks. I see. And just keying into that concept there around setting up an out-of-band method for communication, could you just elaborate a little bit there? As I understand, one example could be that you establish out-of-band a way to encrypt your communications. So as an example, maybe you and I, in the background, the software is doing all this, but really what's going on is there's some kind of Diffie-Hellman key exchange going on. And then later now we can transact or communicate in an encrypted way where you and I have exchanged our public keys. Is that, that's... That, that is exactly right. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Yeah, so then it can potentially allow people to encrypt their communications in a way that maybe it's not as feasible or as easy to do that. Uh, although I suppose, how would that compare with, say, VPNs that we use today? Let's say if somebody's using Molvad or ExpressVPN or some, something, some other modern, right. like current VPN technology, how would that distinguish? So, so the way those work is, is almost all of the um, packets being sent back and forth to um, do the communication setup um, takes the same route as the actual tunnel will um, over the IP network. So, you know, it gets routed from your, your LAN up to your router, across your ISP to the other ISP, back down to, to the other endpoint. Um, if that's being blocked somehow, maybe, uh, you know, some protocols are allowed through, some are not, and the negotiation protocols are blocked, you can negotiate through the night lightning network and then set up your tunnel, which may not be blocked, uh, through the normal route. Um, so it allows you to get around some types of censorship when particular protocols are blocked and others are not, um, or particular ports. Sometimes you can mask your traffic, make it look like a different protocol. But if you can just route your uh, negotiation traffic through the Lightning Network, uh, you don't have to worry about that. Yeah, interesting. And with privacy, I think it's an interesting aspect because there's so many different ways you can fall down or so many different ways that there could be a a fingerprint left behind that could then be the, the key or the string for someone to draw on to try to figure out what's going on and one thing i've heard of with privacy and it, this comes into even coin surveillance and chain surveillance is like a timing analysis and so that can make it uh more less convenient for people so as an example if you're doing all the transactions at a certain time a uh, certain same time of the day that can be more uh, fingerprint, there's a, there's a fingerprint there. And so then the way to get around that is to maybe space out your timings or to randomize the timings or have some kind of noise protocol. But then I guess the point I'm trying to make there is that in some cases that will make it less convenient for people. So do you see that as like this is, you know, these kinds of privacy and censorship resistant technologies will be used by less people because less people just care about or are willing to pay that convenience cost? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult problem because privacy is hard. Information leaks, things like you mentioned with the timing. Like we've, we've even seen people try to figure out who Satoshi is based on when they were posting to the mailing list, when they were committing code to the repository. Oh, it looks like this fits in a you know, European uh, you know, time zone, assuming that they were working during the day. Uh, information like that naturally leaks and it's very difficult to maintain privacy without taking a lot of that into consideration. And most people just don't. They, they don't think in that mindset. Um, I've been working in security for, you know, 20, 25 years. And even sometimes I don't think about some of these cases. Very early on with, with Bitcoin, you know, it was an interesting tech uh, toy, basically. 
I didn't think that I needed to necessarily keep my address private uh, that I was using for trading on the, the Bitcoin OTC channel. Uh, and later in life, that basically led to doxing almost entirely my transaction history on chain. So privacy is difficult. And the easier we can abstract uh, some of that away from the user and make it easier for them, I believe the more adoption that we'll get. But most people are not going to pay that cost. Um, a lot of people just don't care about their privacy. We have an entire uh, new generation of um, young people that have grown up with things like TikTok and Instagram and their entire lives are online. They don't think too much about, okay, what should I keep private? What should I have public? It's, it's just not part of their mindset, it seems. So as technologists, the, the more of this that we can build into the technology and abstract away from the user and make it easy for them, the, the more adoption that we'll see. I see, yeah. And it's interesting, you mentioned things like TikTok and Instagram, and uh, even now I hear, if you look at some of the surveys of what do kids want to be, they want to be a YouTube star or an influencer. So it's going the other way. They want, to be, they want to be more famous. They don't want to be more private. They want to be more famous and more out there. So it's, it's an interesting way. But in fairness, that could also be a cultural impact of fiat money. And that, let's say, a return to sound money might also change some of that incentive there uh, and it might change some of the technology that we use um, and it, it's I guess the other point that's also important to consider is it's not necessarily being private versus every possible thing or every possible entity it might be just as people would say privacy is the ability to select selectively disclose to the world and so if, if you transact or you speak and communicate in ways that are maybe not private versus every single possible entity but if you're at least private against you know most then maybe that's at least an improvement on uh, today and the current state of, of things with messaging and finance. Um, so also wanted to get your thoughts. You are working on some puzzles. So what, what's, what's the deal here? <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, I, you know, with my background in computer security, I throughout my career have gone to a lot of information security and hacker conventions. Um, one of the biggest ones of the year being DEF CON in Las Vegas and puzzles and crypto challenges and things like that are a huge part of that culture to the point that now at DEF CON, we usually have electronic badges that do some interesting stuff. There's almost always a puzzle built into the badge. There's multiple puzzles and access challenges built around parties and events. So, you know, make your way through the challenge, you get to the end and you solve it, you get access to the party, that kind of thing. So I've been both involved in creating these and solving these for probably a couple of decades now. And I, I just enjoy making them. I'm, I'm a, a hobbyist game developer, uh, game designer. I like designing board games, card games, crypto puzzles, things like that. And so attending Bitcoin 2021 earlier this year, I got there the night before the, the convention and I couldn't sleep. So I was thinking, okay, what, what can I do? I'll create a puzzle for, you know, the, the, uh, conference attendees and see if anybody jumps on it and tries to solve it. Um, created a basic little simple one. It had like maybe seven or eight steps to, to get to the end. Um, and just threw it out there on Twitter to see, um, see if anybody found it interesting. I had a, a, you know, small number of players, but they were very enthusiastic about trying to figure out the puzzle. Um, and so I, I think that, uh, 
creating a larger, more involved puzzle for next year might be fun. I've started working on that a bit. I've reached out to the com convention to see if they want to help support in any way. And we're trying to put something fun together uh, for that. But yeah, it's so just something I do kind of as a hobby. I've been doing it for a long time. And uh, if you're going to Bitcoin 2022 next year, uh, you can look forward to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely keen to, and I'm sure many listeners will be uh, interested to attend also. Have you got any tips or tricks for people when they're trying to play these crypto puzzle games? Um, it depends on uh, kind of what type of, of challenges they are. We're going to try and create something uh, for next year that pretty much anyone can play um, and will kind of scale up in difficulty as you progress. So you can play the first part. You can play all the way to the end. Um, it might get somewhat technical at the end with some challenges that might be around like chain analysis. Go find a specific block, specific transaction. Tell us you know, what the values are, those types of things. Um, one of the things that I like to do with these types of puzzles and challenges is educate. So it's, it's trying to get you to either demonstrate that you know a particular skill or learn how to do that skill and then demonstrate that you've learned it. Um, so there may be some challenges around chain analysis. We've got at the conference a number of different areas that are interesting and will probably be uh, involved in some of the challenges. There's the art gallery. Uh, there's the the esports and gaming area, so we may build some challenges around doing things in those areas specifically. Um, and of course, there might be some social challenges. You know, go go find a particular celebrity, and they they give you the password. I can give you a password, and if people find you at the con, you can give them the password, and they they pass that challenge. So we we can build puzzles around literally anything. Uh, we're going to try to build some that are very approachable. Um, and some that, that kind of ramp up in difficulty and, and end up being a little more challenging for, for the more technical, the developers, the artists, uh, you know, kind of some niche subject matter. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I think that'll be really fun. Uh, um, yeah, I'm already really looking forward to Bitcoin 2022. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how, how things go there. So I think it's probably a good spot to wrap up here, Dustin. Uh, but before we finish up, have you got any, I don't know, closing thoughts that you want people to think about? Or, and of course, where can uh, people find you online if they want to follow your work? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm pretty much everywhere under the name Druidian, D-R-U-I-D-A-N on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm just my regular name, Dustin.D.Trammel. As far as, you know, parting thoughts, um, you know, Bitcoin is inevitable. Uh, the real question is just how fast do we get there? I'm a big proponent of getting there faster. Uh, which is one of the reasons, again, that, that I'm investing in Bitcoin and Bitcoin native companies. You know, the faster we can get there, the better for humanity. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Dustin. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Yeah, it was great having me on. Thank you so much. So I hope you enjoyed that discussion and exploration of Bitcoin in the early days, as well as where it's going. So go and get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 314 for this episode. And of course, make sure you share this show. There's a lot of new people coming into the space and they need to learn about Bitcoin. So make sure you share the show out so they can also learn. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels.